Thank you so much for coming to our very first Producers Union event. <laughs> the Producers Union was formed to define and protect the role of producers in narrative feature films and to fight for equitable and sustainable pay and other basic benefits that currently producers do not get. What tech initially did to entertainment seemed great. Hey, you know, there was, it was almost like, it was like a, a communist view was brought to entertainment. We can pay everyone tons of money. We can make art, we can make commerce. You're all gonna get paid. Everything is great. And, uh, and, uh, and the world is better than it was before. The strike is about extinction. And the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I think that now applies to producers as well. The more independent producers that I talk to, the more I hear them say things I never heard them say 10 years ago or even five years ago, um, I hear them now saying, I'm not sure I can stay in this anymore. The division between the haves and the have-nots is obscene. So I do take issue with David Zaslav's salary, but I also take issue with my salary and with Brad Pitt's salary and with Leonardo DiCaprio's salary and with Ryan Murphy's salary. So I think it's not fair to single out executive pay. The, the top 0.1% of actors and writers and executives, in my view, and producers, are overpaid. All right, people, let's go. Welcome to episode five of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants, the Mostly Movies podcast. I'm your host, James Harker. If you'd like to contact me with comments or questions, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can email me using the contact form on the About page of my website, tinytyrantspodcast.com. In the introductory segment of this episode, entitled Aliens vs. Producers, Struggle in the Parasite Colony, we heard from three movie producers. The first was an anonymous representative of the Producers Union, which is an as-yet-unrecognized labor organization. Second, we heard producer Jason Blum's comments about the elusive and illusory video streaming utopia digital tech was supposed to initiate. Blum is the founder and CEO of the hugely successful Blumhouse Productions, which specializes in horror movies, including Five Nights at Freddy's and the recent Halloween reboots. Third, screenwriter, director, and producer Billy Ray, who is a member of the Writers Guild of America Board of Directors, as well as a Directors Guild of America member, warned that movie producers are an endangered species that he fears may soon be extinct. And finally, Jason Blum returned to denounce, not altogether insincerely, I'd like to suggest, the colossal sums of money devoured by Hollywood's most sought-after actors, directors, writers, and producers including himself. The world's full of some terrifying creatures who'd have no trouble making a quick meal out of us humans. Is what Billy Ray so melodramatically suggested true? Are independent movie producers an endangered species? If so, by what forces or entities is their existence threatened? Can anything be done to save independent movie producers from extinction? Is, quote, the producers union, unquote, the remedy? How did this come about, and who, if anyone, is the culprit? Is the demise of the independent movie producer a predictable stage of motion picture industry evolution? 
And finally, does anyone care if producers have become the Miami blue butterfly of the entertainment ecosystem or that, if Billy Ray is right, independent producers might soon be the Tinseltown version of Australia's Christmas Island rat and so are destined to be annihilated? I think the answer to the last of those questions, does anyone care, is both yes and no. Obviously, working independent movie producers want to continue making motion pictures. After working in the industry for more than a quarter century, I feel comfortable saying that, as is the case with many of us who work in the business, most producers are drawn to the work not because they want to get rich, but because they really like movies. But liking movies only gets you so far. To stick with it and succeed, producers also need to enjoy collaborating and problem-solving, as well as meeting the endless, often unpredictable challenges that accompany the complicated process of motion picture production. Challenges, by the way, that confront not only producers, but everyone involved in the process, from celebrity actors and directors to production assistants and the caterers and craft services workers who keep hundreds of crew members and performers with every imaginable dietary preference fed and caffeinated. So sure, independent movie producers care, and they want to continue producing. I'm so scared. I know. I know. I know. I know. Please. I don't want to die. I'm not ready. You're not going to die. Please just hang on. I want to go. However, I think it's also fair to say that it doesn't matter one bit to the millions of people who consume movies and television shows whether or not producers are involved in the process. Moviegoers and television viewers, with rare exceptions, don't really care how the cinematic sausage gets made or who is involved in making it. Indeed, if OpenAI or Elon Musk's XAI can develop an algorithm nuanced enough to make it possible for you or me or small groups of storytellers to use our phones or computers to make movies like Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist or Greta Gerwig's Barbie or Jordan Peele's Get Out, I'm willing to bet that very few people outside of Hollywood's guilds and unions are going to complain. In fact, I'll take it one step further and suggest that if the Dr. Frankensteins of AI make it possible for Christopher Nolan or a women's group in West Africa or some kid in Montana to make movies without producers, cinematographers, production designers, honey wagons, intimacy directors, diesel generator operators, and blood squibs, that will be a moonshot event for artificial intelligence that will also inaugurate the birth of a truly independent world cinema. But until AI delivers its moonshot to the movie's moment, motion picture development and production will remain a risk-fraught, volatile, labor-intensive, and expensive enterprise. A process that is best overseen by producers. One or two or a small team of individuals who are passionate and rational, organized and flexible, cautious and fearless, and who are vested with ultimate power and authority over the movie or TV project, as well as power and authority over, and what I'm about to say is central to our subject and is not optional, they must enjoy power and authority over everyone working on that project, including actors and the director. That is to say, until we're able to make movies with AI, productions need producers. Real producers, not men and women with the title producer who are little more than glorified production managers or who are the crony or associate or business partner of a celebrity actor or director. Rather, movie and TV projects need men and women like producer Jason Blum, who we'll hear a bit more about in a minute, who take responsibility for their projects and who are empowered to hold their subordinates responsible as well. 
If you doubt at all that movie producers are indispensable to a project, keep in mind that it is a movie's producers that the Academy Award for Best Picture is given to each year. Now, regardless of what you think about the Academy Awards, and setting aside the fact that Louis B. Mayer created the Academy in 1929 in order to manipulate his employees by appealing to their narcissism, I found that the best way to handle filmmakers was to hang medals all over them. If I got them cups and awards, they'd kill themselves to produce what I wanted. That's why the Academy Awards was created. Setting all that aside, it is arguable that producers, even more than money, are the engines that drive motion picture productions. For this reason, it is the studios, streamers, and those who finance movies and television shows who need producers. Producers like Jason Blum. And it is producers who actually take responsibility for managing their projects and companies who are an endangered species. And because movie beasts like Jason Blum are being driven to extinction, the cost of movies and TV shows continues to skyrocket. And if there's any doubt in your mind who's paying the bill for that profligacy and waste, I suggest you tally what you're paying for your cable accounts and streaming subscriptions, and that you reflect on those costs while you're sitting through commercial interruptions next time you're watching a show on Netflix or Prime Video or Disney Plus or Max. Before I talk about what sets Jason Blum and the vanishingly few producers like him apart in the melodrama of social Darwinism unfolding in entertainment, let's take a minute to talk about the role of a movie and TV producer. And let's listen to a few producers describe, or attempt to describe, what they do. Here are a few of the independent producers who attended the Producers Union event held in June 2023 at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City and that I excerpted at the start of this episode. I wanna be a producer and see my name, Leo Bloom in lights. One of the goals of the Producers Union actually is to define the role of the producer. So I would like each producer very briefly to basically sum up what it is you do. For me, I always try to think about producing as creating momentum. I think the way I like to define it is that you are the protector. Like, you protect the movie, and that means different things at different times. I think the reason why it is a bit um, uh, uh, abstract people is that actually it's an abstract uh, sort of at the beginning of things. We're trying to really figure out sort of, well, what is my role in this movie in particular? Well, I hope those producers give more support to the sound departments on their movies than the producers' union gave to its sound department at the Tribeca Film Festival. Anyway, that was, admittedly, three young and relatively inexperienced independent film producers struggling, and in my opinion failing, to describe what they do. It's easy to appreciate why they think they might need to join a labor union. Let's try something else. Here's how the producers' union basic agreement the contract the union hopes to see in use one day defines a producer. Quote, The producer is the person who supervises the creative, financial, and logistical elements of making a motion picture. The producer is the person responsible for ensuring a motion picture is completed in accordance with the script, budget, and schedule agreed upon by the employer and the producer. 
unquote. I think most producers would agree that that's a pretty good bare-bones description of the producer's job. Now let's listen to one of Hollywood's most successful producers, Paula Wagner, talk about the producer's role as part of an interview she gave in 2018 for premier motion picture camera lens maker Cook Optics. I've added an introduction that offers a clue to both Wagner's success and to the threat facing other so-called independent producers. So when TAPS uh, completed, uh, Sean invited me out to L.A. And I went out and I was interviewing agents, and that's where I met Paula Wagner. And she represented me for many years and later became my producing partner, and I want to thank Paula Wagner. The job of putting together a movie is really kind of monumental. Some of the movies I've made have been have shot all over the world. You'll put together various crews in each place. Part of the job of the producer is to put together a group of people that interact with synergy, that are moving together to create this behemoth piece of entertainment, the movie. Look, you know, producing a film is like putting together this huge company designed to do this one thing, and everybody has a different job. You put it all together really fast. They do the job, and just when they're all working together in a great collaborative way, then it's time to move on and do the next one. The producer is in charge of everything, from the concept and the development of the screenplay all the way to the marketing and distribution of the film. Paula Wagner did offer more specifics about the producer's job than we heard from the participants in the Producers' Union event. But as I said, the clip I just played also offers a clue as to what is going on in the Hollywood ecosystem. But first, is Billy Ray right that independent producers are an endangered species? The answer, except for films made at the lowest imaginable budget levels, is certainly yes. And the quite obvious threat to independent producers, which, bizarrely enough, is also threatening the Miami Blue Butterfly and which helped to drive the Christmas Island rat to extinction, is... Parasites. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. Survivor. And all clouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. That was, of course, a scene from what may be the greatest Parasite movie ever made. 20th Century Fox's 1979 hit Alien, directed by Ridley Scott and starring Sigourney Weaver in her breakout role as the invincible warrant officer Ellen Ripley. Alien follows the crew of the starship Nostromo, who discover a mysterious alien creature on a desolate planet. In the intense moment we just listened to, Ash, played by Sir Ian Holm, and the character who earlier in the film had disobeyed Ripley's order by allowing the alien creature onto their starship, has been revealed to be a secret android. The android, Ash, which has just been torn to pieces, explains the sinister agenda of the owner of the starship, 
Weyland-Yutani Corporation, usually referred to in the film as the company, which is to bring the alien life form back to Earth, even at the expense of the crew's safety and lives. The company's motive is to exploit the alien parasite's unique and deadly characteristics for military and bioweapon applications. Ash, the android, had been feigning ignorance of the company's plan, which under the android's protection had already led to the deaths of the Nostromo's executive officer, Kane, its second engineer, Brett, as well as Dallas, the ship's captain. Up to the point in the film when he is found out, the android, Ash, the starship's medical officer, has been pretending to be a human concerned with the well-being of his fellow crew members, when, in fact, he is an operative in the company's nefarious and deadly scheme. What's it got down his throat? I would suggest it's feeding him oxygen. Paralyzes him, puts him in a coma. And keeps him alive. Now, what the hell is that? Well, we got to get it off him. Just a minute, just a minute. I mean, let's not be too hasty. We don't know anything about it. Now, we're assuming it's feeding him oxygen. If we remove it, could kill him. Did you want something? Yes, I, uh... had a little talk. How's, uh, how's Kane? He's holding, no changes. And, uh, our guest... Hmm? Well, as I said, I'm still collating, actually, but uh, I have confirmed that he's got an outer layer of protein polysaccharides. He has a funny habit of shedding his cells and replacing them with polarized silicon. That's funny. What does it mean? Well, it's an interesting combination of elements, making him a tough little son of a... And you let him in? I was obeying a direct order, remember? Ash... When Dallas and Kane are off the ship, I'm senior officer. Oh, yes, I forgot. You also forgot the science division's basic quarantine law. No, that I didn't forget. Oh, I see. You just broke it. Huh? Look, what would you have done with Kane? Hmm? You know his only chance of survival was to get him in here. Ash, the Wayland yutani Corporation's synthetic shill, hides behind a mask of humanity and concern when, in fact, he's been programmed, so to speak, to protect the interests of the company and ensure that the alien parasite will thrive. If you've listened to any of the previous episodes of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants, you know that the unionization of virtually everyone involved in the motion picture production process has been central to my diagnosis of the spending sickness, bloating movie and television budgets, as well as the inequities plaguing rank-and-file workers in the industry. You also know that I focused especially on the presence of supervisors, managers, producers, production company owners, and even self-described studio owners such as Ben Affleck and Matt Damon within the ranks and even the leadership of the industry's most powerful guilds, the DGA, SAG-AFTRA, and the WGA. And you will recall that I discussed in the podcast's third episode, I'm George Clooney, damn it, how these celebrity union members, which The Hollywood Reporter called, quote, major members, unquote, have leveraged their positions on both sides of the collective bargaining table to take more and more control of projects and suck more and more of the budget and revenue out of those projects. 
Which brings us back to independent producers, the threat of their extinction, and the attempt by some of those independent producers to unionize in the form of the producers' union. Do you recall the dulcet tone of Billy Ray's voice at the beginning of the show as he expressed his abiding concern for the threats to independent producers' careers? What if I told you that Billy Ray, screenwriter, podcaster, executive producer, member of the Directors Guild, and former negotiator and current board member for the Writers Guild of America, is the Nostromo medical officer Ash in the struggle for the Hollywood parasite colony? What if I told you that Billy Ray Ash, along with influential writers, actors, and directors like him, is actually a shill for the celebrity producer cartel operating within the Hollywood Guild and union cartels? Before I explain, let's listen to Billy Ray and producer Jennifer Fox on the Deadline Strike Talk podcast on September 1st, 2023. Please keep in mind as you listen that when these two Hollywood heavyweights discuss the PGA, they are discussing the Producers Guild of America, not the Producers Union. The distinction will be important moving forward. The more independent producers that I talk to, the more I hear them say things I never heard them say 10 years ago or even five years ago, I hear them now saying, I'm not sure I can stay in this. Studios uh, and, and financiers can help you here, but they have to voluntarily help you. And that is because you don't have a collective bargaining unit that can provide some sort of minimums, some sort of guardrails for you. Why is there no such thing? What I've been told is that it's because producers are considered managers and because we are hiring the crew and hiring other people to build the machine that is a specific production, um, we're considered in a management role. We're falling into a category that doesn't allow us to unionize. In what ways can the PGA protect you? PGA is a trade organization. It is not a union. So um, that is not to disparage the PGA. It's just that they don't have the power to offer um, these kinds of requirements of studios. So much of this is about, as I said, survivability. Writers are asking, can they stay in this and sustain a living? Actors are asking, asking can we stay in this? I, I wanted to make it clear the producers are asking those same questions of themselves as well. Podcast host, screenwriter, director, and producer Billy Ray sounds pretty empathetic, right? Why, he asks Jennifer Fox, don't independent producers have a union? Golly gee, Jennifer, I'm stumped, he'd have us all believe. But Billy Ray Ash, who is a passionate Hollywood history buff, surely knows the answer. The fact is that in June of 1968, the AMPTP, the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers, the trade organization that represents the cartel of studios and streamers, the same organization that SAG-AFTRA leadership and IATSE leadership and WGA leadership and members of those labor organizations have repeatedly vilified as a predatory union-busting Godzilla. The AMPTP and the cartel of studios it represented in 1968 had actually formally agreed to recognize the Producers Guild of America, the PGA, as a labor organization representing producers. Five months later, on November 6, 1968, PGA members ratified their first collective bargaining agreement with the AMPTP. Hollywood producers had established their first labor union. 
I'm sure Billy Ray, if he hadn't been only eight years old at the time, would have considered that cause for celebration. Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. Hip, hip. But wait a minute. Not so fast. Do you know what happened next? Less than one year later, in 1969, the Writers Guild of America, producer and screenwriter Billy Ray Ash's guild, backed a lawsuit filed in California Superior Court by one of the WGA's former presidents, Christopher Knopf, in an attempt to crush the Producers Guild of America and its members' successful unionizing effort, and with it, their collective bargaining agreement with the AMPTP. And although Knopf and his WGA backers lost in Superior Court, the former WGA president, once again with the financial backing of the Writers Guild, challenged the Superior Court's decision and, on June 24, 1974, a little more than five years after the studios and the supposedly union-busting AMPTP had agreed to recognize the PGA as a producer's union, the Second District Court of Appeal of California found in favor of the WGA's shill and reversed the Superior Court's decision. The PGA union was dead, and one labor union had successfully annihilated a fledgling labor union. A Hollywood parasite colony dynamic that is not unprecedented, by the way, as we'll learn in future episodes focusing on the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, which was instrumental in violently crushing the Conference of Studio Unions in 1946. Let me read from a May 20th, 2021 Deadline.com story about the producers' union in which the WGA's 1974 PGA lawsuit victory is discussed. Quote, the Producers Guild of America once had been an actual union, recognized as such for several years by the AMPTP before the California Court of Appeals stripped it of union status in 1974 as the result of a lawsuit financed by the WGA West, which represents writer-producers, even though it doesn't bargain for them as producers. That case was known as Knopf versus Producers Guild of America, and its lead plaintiff was Christopher Knopf, a former president of the WGA West. The main issue was whether the members of the PGA were employers and thus not eligible to unionize. The appellate court ruled that the uncontradicted facts showing that the overwhelming majority of all PGA officials having any power or authority with respect to the negotiation of the collective bargaining agreement were employer producers establish as a matter of law that PGA was interfered with or dominated or controlled by employers within the meaning of the state's labor code, unquote. The appeals court found that because so many of the PGA's members and officials owned production companies, the PGA as a labor organization had been interfered with or dominated or controlled by employers within the meaning of California's labor code, and that, for this reason, the PGA, under California law, was not a legitimate collective bargaining representative for producers. But the legal challenge to the PGA union was funded by the Writers Guild, which was itself filled with producers in 1969. In 1969, the alien parasite had already infected the WGA, as well as SAG and the DGA, for that matter. And the producers, who were also members of the WGA, wanted to ensure that they, their guild's most powerful member producers, had as much control as possible over movie and television projects, as well as power and control over the WGA member producers' subordinate WGA member employees. 
and they also wanted to ensure that WGA member producers would be able to dominate contract negotiations with the studios. The WGA wanted to make sure that the employers who interfere with, dominate, and control the film industry producers are, to the extent possible, WGA members. Fade in on the scene 50 years after the WGA obliterated the PGA Union, and Starship Hollywood is all but completely dominated by powerful millionaire and even billionaire parasitic xenomorphs who are also members of the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, and the Screen Actors Guild, while at the same time they are production company owners. Recall, you heard Tom Cruise talking about his producing partner Paula Wagner. And in many cases, these celebrity guild members are the de facto and even the de jure employers of their so-called union brothers and sisters who are weaker by orders of magnitude than these predatory creatures. And it is the minor SAG and DGA and WGA members behind and within whom the xenomorph parasite guild member producers such as Tom Cruise and George Clooney incubate and hide to legitimate the labor organizations they dominate. I'd like to suggest that the adjective independent is grossly overused and usually inaccurate when applied to movie and television producers. There are very few truly independent producers working in Hollywood, except at the very lowest budgetary levels. The fact is that, given the control celebrities and the Hollywood power players who dominate Hollywood's guilds have, most producers, if they aren't already a power broker like Tyler Perry or Steven Spielberg, are dependent on the involvement and goodwill of a SAG or WGA or DGA member for their existence and survival. Just as the Nostromo's executive officer Kane was dependent on the oxygen fed to him by the alien parasite clinging to his face in the first alien film. What's it got down his throat? I would suggest it's feeding him oxygen. Paralyzes him, puts him in a coma. And keeps him alive. Now, what the hell is that? And even producers like Paula Wagner, with whom stars like Tom Cruise have chosen to partner, by and large, have only as much power and authority over a project as the guild member celebrity is willing to give them. And with each new gilded parasite that attaches itself to the project, a little more of the producer's power and authority, and even their salary, is drained from the host. Try to remove the celebrity parasite from the face of a producer not affiliated with one of the guilds and see what happens. Alternatively, leave the celebrity parasite attached to the producer, and there's a good chance the befanged and slavering xenomorph the producer volunteered to incubate will burst forth and leave the producer's independent and lifeless body behind it. Or, a producer can plot a course for themselves that limits, as much as possible, their dependence on Hollywood's parasitic and gilded xenomorphs, and, by doing so, maintain the authority over his or her movie or TV project necessary to control costs, and maybe even ensure that they can get themselves paid. Which brings us back to Jason Blum. Blum is one producer who seems to have found a formula for remaining independent in the best sense of that word. The founder of Blumhouse Productions, Blumhouse Television, as well as his company's foreign sales arm, Blumhouse International, Jason Blum started his career in theater before moving on to be a co-head of acquisitions for Miramax Films. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Jason Blum's many accomplishments. I put a link in the show notes to an amusing NPR Planet Money podcast segment about Blum that aired in 2017. I encourage you to check it out. Here are a few clips from that Planet Money episode. Blum is famous in this industry for getting the most money out of the cheapest possible films. And when you rank movies by the return on investment, how much money went into making a film compared to how much profit it created, Jason Blum's name is on six of the top 20 films made in the last five years. Jason Blum has this low-budget movie-making thing down to a science. He has a series of rules. Should I give you the three rules of how to make a cheap movie? Yeah, I want the three rules. Okay, the three rules are not too many speaking parts, not too many locations. And there is rule number three. This is probably the most important rule. And it's that stars, directors, producers, all of your talent, you pay them as little as it is legally possible to pay them. Blum actually has a fourth rule for cheap movie making, and it's ironclad. Never, ever break your budget. Never try to spend your way out of a problem. You see, the dependent producers threatened with extinction and who think a union might help them to survive don't have the power and authority to even consider Jason Blum's third and fourth rules for filming. Pay the creative talent as little as possible and never break your budget. Why not? Because the dependent producers exercise little meaningful control over a project. Instead, it is the Hollywood xenomorph producers who are also members of the WGA and SAG and the DGA, many of whose names you won't recognize, the so-called talent, that have rendered non-unionized producers helpless and cowering in fear. Here's Jason Blum again. Give particular attention to the last of the three clips in which Blum talks about producing for a Hollywood studio. I did Paranormal Activity, then Insidious, then Sinister, and then The Purge. Even after the three movies, people were still like, ah, I got lucky or this or that. You know, I don't think special effects or car chases, all that stuff, I don't think that stuff makes for great movies. I think they're great movies with those things in them. But when you start relying on those things for a great movie, things start to go south. What I loved about independent film was making the movies, but I thought independent distribution was for the birds. I hated it because it was so broken. And my feeling about studio filmmaking was the exact opposite. I thought the producing of studio movies was horrible because it was producing by committee and everyone was terrified of their own shadow. Everyone producing for the studios is afraid of their own shadows, according to Jason Blum. And it's true. But don't think for a minute that it's the studio executives who strike fear in the hearts of Hollywood producers. The studio executives are as frightened as any of the non-guild producers struggling to survive in the union and guild-dominated parasite colony. Let me give you just one first-hand example of the Hollywood producers' powerlessness and the unnecessary costs that are often the result. A few years ago, I worked on a television series in New York City financed by Warner Brothers Discovery. The series employed as many as 10 producers, including both the WGA member writer and the DGA member director, who were both series executive producers. Before shooting commenced, the director insisted that the crew would never be broken for lunch for the entirety of the four or five months of shooting. You see, the director, whom you have likely never heard of, didn't want to lose his momentum by pausing for a 30-minute meal. His fellow producers conceded to the demand. Now, so you can appreciate the costs that resulted from this decision, let me briefly explain the relevant section of the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees Union contract under which I and hundreds of other below-the-line members of IATSE Local 52 
as well as other IATSE locals were working. The IATSE contract requires that a crew member be broken for a meal at least every six hours. If a crew member is not broken for a meal within six hours, that worker is paid what is called a meal penalty for every half hour they continue working, beginning at six hours and one minute. The first two meal penalties the producers incur are low, totaling $25 for the first hour. But the third meal penalty, which is known as a, quote, prevailing rate meal penalty, unquote, and that is imposed once the crew member goes seven hours and one minute without a break, is equal to the crew member's regular or overtime hourly rate, whichever is applicable at the time, every half hour. So, for example, the rate for an electrician on that television series, what we call a lamp operator, was $44 per hour. This is the lowest hourly rate of any IATSE position under the applicable contract. Under the director's nutty no-break plan, a lamp operator would have to be paid an additional $88 over their contract wage for every hour they weren't broken for lunch. And when that lamp operator went into overtime, their hourly earnings climbed to as much as $264 an hour. On a typical day on that television series, there were no fewer than 50 other IATSE members working on the shooting crew who, like me, worked 10 or 12 or more hours each day, five days a week, without a meal break. Because momentum. I'll post a redacted copy of one of my paychecks from the job on the PDF page of the tinytyrantspodcast.com website if you'd like to see it. You'll see there that that week, the producers paid me $1,437 in meal penalties, 35% of my gross earnings that week. Other weeks, Warner Brothers Discovery was obligated to pay me more than $2,500 in meal penalties for a single week. And keep in mind, I was just one of 50 crew members collecting those penalties day after day and week after week because over that long summer in New York City, the producers weren't willing to tell the wacko director, no. And because, as Jason Blum put it a moment ago, virtually every producer in Hollywood is afraid of their own shadow. So, as a consequence of producers' acquiescence to the DGA member director's irrational demand, the production company was forced to pay around $75,000 per week, and during some weeks more than $100,000, in unnecessary meal penalties to many of its below-the-line crew members. And this went on for roughly 20 weeks costing Warner Brothers Discovery and the series financiers upwards of $2 million. This is only one of many examples from that television series of the director's profligacy. In addition, he demanded that the producers hire his girlfriend as a makeup artist at IATSE Union Wages, even though she had virtually no motion picture industry experience. And, by the way, she would also have made bank on the same meal penalties as the other IATSE members. The director also demanded that his newly minted makeup artist's girlfriend be provided with daily limousine service to and from the set, which meant she had her very own SUV and her very own International Brotherhood of Teamsters member to chauffeur her around. And the director's abuse, actually sometimes verbally abusive conduct, but that's for another episode, went on and on and on for weeks. Is it any wonder that movie and TV production budgets are out of control and that independent producers are being driven to extinction? Not at all. But it didn't need to go this way. The demise of the movie producer is not part of the natural and necessary evolution of the motion picture production process. 
It is a consequence of movie financiers and studio executives' collective refusals to go full Ellen Ripley on xenomorphs in the Hollywood parasite colony. It is a consequence of overindulgence, unaccountability, and cowardice. It is a consequence of a decadent entertainment culture in which motion picture financiers allow the wrong people to act like they're the next Francis Ford Coppola. My, my film is not a movie. My film is not uh, about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. It's what it was really like. It was crazy. And the way we made it was very much like the way the Americans were in Vietnam. We were in the jungle. There were too many of us. We had access to too many, uh, too much money. Too much equipment. And little by little, we went insane. When Coppola went insane and the Apocalypse Now budget ballooned from $12 million to more than $30 million, Coppola had, according to United Artists executive Stephen Bach, financed some of the film and had secured, at least in theory, some of the cost overruns by putting up his home and other property as collateral to cover UA's continuing investment. But directors like the one who refused to break me and his crew for lunch aren't Francis Ford Coppola or Steven Spielberg or Woody Allen. They aren't auteurs. They aren't, in any meaningful sense of the term, artists. They are, at best, skilled technicians. And it's the producer's job to keep everyone's priorities straight. As I discussed in episode four of this podcast, Hollywood and the Big Con, producers are supposed to be the guardians of the financier's interests during the production. Independent producers can't save themselves with the dream of becoming a unionized parasite and with the mantra, if you can't beat them, join them. The cure for those of us who inhabit the parasite colony is not surrender. The answer is to strap on a flamethrower, take a page from the legal arguments of Writers Guild shill Christopher Knopf in 1974, and rid the Starship Hollywood guilds and unions of the supervisors and the A-list SAG, WGA, and DJ one-percenter xenomorphs who, quote, interfere with or dominate or control, unquote, real working people's lives and Hollywood's labor organizations. I hope you enjoy this episode of Thousands of Tiny Tyrants. If you'd like to contact me with comments or questions, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can email me using the contact form on the About page of our website, tinytyrantspodcast.com. Until we meet again, may you, good people of conscience, keep the thousands of tiny tyrants at bay. <laughs>